our gracious, loving, heavenly Father. Over the last few weeks, we have heard the hard and difficult word about your people's sin. Because not only are we reading about their sin, but we are seeing a mirror into our own hearts and lives. It has been hard and difficult because accompanied with this message of their sin has been a message of judgment, of right judgment. We, as we read through these pages, find in our hearts the very same desires and the very same loves that draw us away from you, that rebel against you, and that shame you and dishonor you. And so we pray, Father, that you'll continue to be at work in our hearts to soften them, to help us to see again and again our great need of you. And we ask especially this morning that you would help us to see our great hope, the hope that only you can give. Father, I pray for uh, your spirit to be at work among us to help us understand your word, this word so precious. And we pray that you help me to speak clearly from this as I ought. For we pray all of this for your glory and our joy together in Jesus' name. Amen. Steal away a man's hope and you steal away the last and most crucial thing a man needs to go on living. In his book, A Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl argues that the loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect on men. Frankl was a Holocaust survivor, and his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp profoundly shaped his understanding of hope. Without it, a man no longer possesses the motive for living. And with no future to look forward to, he curls up in a corner and dies. Any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. It's true. Without hope, there is no motive to carry on. And we come to this part of the book of Isaiah. The tone has so far leading up to it has essentially been one of despair. The people of God are sinful through and through. Last week, we saw how far short they fell of their potential. They were to be a beacon of light to a dark world, shining the light of God to the nations around them. But because of their idolatry, their pride, poor leadership, and their rejection of God's word, instead of being a light to the nations, they ended up being a mirror to the nations, reflecting back to the world sinful habits and depraved hearts. And while there have been glimmers of hope, the general feel of the first five chapters has been doom and gloom. And into this darkness, into this pit, now shines a light. Chapters 6 to 12 begin shining for us the light of hope into the darkness of sin and judgment. But before we go on, it'll be good to clear up one thing. You see, Isaiah chapter 6 to 12 as you read through it on your own, can be a little confusing. And again, it's filled with a lot of poetry, and Asians are not very good at dealing with poetry and metaphors, and so that can be tough. But what's even more confusing is that there are often a lot of names that are thrown around in these chapters, but there are actually only four players. Uh, Here's a map of the region in question. And you can see on the map all the names used in Isaiah 6 to 12 and who they are referring to. 
Uh, so for those listening online, here's what's going on. We've got a map here of the Middle East at the time of Isaiah. Off the top right of the map, kind of pointing away, is the superpower of the day, Assyria, right? They're looming large in the background of our passage. We hear lots more about them in the weeks to come. Now, to the top right in that green area, we've got the nation of Syria. Damascus is the capital of Syria. Aram is another reference to Syria, and Rezin is their king. In the middle of the map in yellow is Israel, the the northern tribes of Israel. Uh, It's uh, also referred to here in the book of Isaiah as Ephraim, which is one of the tribes of Israel, Israel itself, and Samaria. And their king uh, goes by the name of Pekah. Uh, Then down south, we have the nation of Judah. Isaiah is mostly preaching to this nation. Jerusalem is the capital, and Ahaz is the current king. Clear as mud? Okay. Uh, So (laughs) there are a lot of names there, and hopefully this map helps us make sense of who is who in these chapters. Uh, If you'd like, I can show you this later. I can't put this online because I think I stole it from someone and then changed it, so there might be some copyright issues. Um, So just feel free to ask me later and and I can show you this map. Now, as we move into chapter 6 of Isaiah, we move into what some commentators call uh, the Book of the King. Uh, You'll notice that our sermon series is titled King, Servant, Conqueror. And that's because as we journey through this mammoth book, we'll see that God is painted as a... uh, uh, Sorry, we'll see God and his king pictured in three ways. Uh, He'll be painted as a king, uh, then as a servant, and then as a mighty conqueror. Now, Isaiah uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 5, they act as sort of a long introduction. And now in Isaiah 6, we move into the first of these three movements. We see God as king. Now, in point one of your outline, you'll see that I've put that in Isaiah 6, that we have our first picture. I think it's because it's best to see these seven chapters as a series of pictures or photos, if you like, put side by side so that we can get this collage of this big picture of what God is doing. Now, our first picture is the picture of the true king of God's people, God himself. We begin in verse 1, and we're told that this is the vision. This vision is set in the time of the death of King Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. And his reign was a time of great peace and prosperity. So his death ushered in this time of uncertainty, profound uncertainty. And into this uncertainty, Isaiah sees this vision of God. A king seated on his throne. The train of his robe fills the temple. And if the temple is only big enough to fit the train of his robe, then you know that God is bigger and more massive. His throne is in the heavens where he is seated. A high order of angels, the seraphim, they're flying around crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is so unique, so distinct, that the angels, the only way the angels can describe him is by repeating the word holy three times. Isaiah is transported into this too glorious a scene, and it's too much too glorious for him. Because the first words that come out of his mouth are, woe is me. A woe is a curse. He's saying, I'm cursed. I can't stand here. Nothing good can come from me standing here in the presence of this holy God. 
Now, the, word, the words that he says are really important because he finishes chapter 5 slamming God's people and bringing on them a bunch of woes. You have a look at chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, you are, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. 5.11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink and tarry late into the night as wine inflames them. Chapter 5, verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, and so on in chapter 5, verse 20, and verse 21, and verse 22. Woe, woe, woe to you. Cursed are you, people of God. And now he comes into the throne room of God, and Isaiah is cursing himself. In Isaiah 6, it's almost as if we're given a small picture of God's kingship, but also a small picture of the problem of God's people. They stand before an utterly distinct, totally unique, and manifestly awesome and powerful God, and they are cursed in his presence. It's then interesting that Isaiah would point to his lips as the source of his uncleanness. And then the angel comes and touches his lips with a burning coal, symbolizing his life and lips now becoming pure. And then God commissions him with a message that is to be on his lips. Only God can make them clean. Isaiah is then given a job. Preach clearly. But as you preach, they will hear but not understand. They will see but not perceive. They will, their hearts will become dull. Their ears heavy. Their eyes will be blinded. And keep preaching this message until everything is laid waste. Until everything is destroyed. Praise God that Pastor Ben and I do not have this ministry. (laughs) But here we have this picture. God is king. He has been and always will be the true king of God's people. And his prophet is now going into the land with a big and sad message. Fast forward about five years and we open up chapter 7. Ahaz, the son of Uzziah, is now the king and he's got a problem. You go back to the map and you'll see why. See, there are three main players on this map. Syria to the north, far north, Israel to the north, and Judah to the south. Now in Isaiah 7, what has happened is that Israel and Syria have formed an alliance. Both of them have marched up to the doors of Jerusalem and they are intending to attack it. Ahaz has a fairly pro-Assyrian stance, and his big temptation at the moment is to run off to Assyria and join and form an alliance with them. And then we read in verse 2 that in the face of the Syrian-Israel alliance and their impending attack, Ahaz's reaction is fear. Have a look at verse 2. Chapter 7, verse 2. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They are literally rattled. Right? In this situation, God sends Isaiah. Now pause there for a moment and let's, let's breathe. Have a think about your name. Have a think about your name. Do you know what your name means? Uh, I'm not sure if my parents knew or not, but my name, Stephen, uh, comes from the Bible. It's a Greek word, uh, and the word means crown. Uh, we named our son Jaden because his, Hebrew, his name in Hebrew means Yahweh has heard or judged. Janessa means Yahweh is gracious or Yahweh lifts up. Uh, We picked those names partly because we like the sound of it and we also like their meaning. Ah, That's about it. 
Right? Our parents probably picked our names because they sounded good, and if they had a baby name book, they looked it up and checked to make sure that it didn't have any dodgy associations. Right? Right? When we were trying to pick a name for Eliza, I really liked the name Freya for some reason. I, the name Freya was just wonderful. It just was this gorgeous name. And then I found out she was the pagan goddess of sexuality or something. Uh, there goes that name. All right. But in the Bible, names carry a greater sense of significance. They take on big metaphorical symbolic significance for the story that is being told. And so in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, Isaiah is told to go and meet Ahaz with his son, Shear Jashub. Now, the name Shear Jashub means a remnant will turn or a remnant will repent. Uh, in Isaiah's message to Ahaz, he's, he's, told, he's telling Ahaz, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. God is telling him if he will survive, if he repents. If he turns away from his fear and turns towards trusting God. You have a look at verses, uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 7. Read with me. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You hear that? Do not be afraid. Within 65 years, Israel and Syria, they will be gone. Remain firm in your faith now, or you will not be firm at all. Now, we're not told what happens with the impending attack. Uh, this chapter is, it doesn't seem to be interested in that. It's more interested in about what Ahaz has done, whether he will trust God and engage with him as his Lord. And you see, that's where the story moves next in verse 10 onwards. Now, when you look at verse 10 and you read it, at first glance, it looks like Ahaz is actually being a very pious man. Read with me verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said to him, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? You see, it looks at first glance that Ahaz is just simply quoting from the law in Deuteronomy. Do not test the Lord your God. But there's actually a lot more here than meets the eye. You read verses, look over again, verses 10 to 13, and notice the possessive pronouns. Isaiah speaks in verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God. But then you notice in verse 12 that Ahaz drops the, personal pro, the possessive pronoun in, in his reply. I will not put the Lord to the test. And then in, Isaiah, uh, in verse 13, Isaiah replies, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? You see that there? Ahaz is told, engage with your God. Right? Be with your God. Speak with your God. Relate to him. But he refuses to do so. He sees, but he does not perceive. He hears, but he does not understand. Ahaz, from the line of David, the rightful king of the whole of Israel. But here he is, a failed king. He does not 
listen. He does not hear. He does not engage. And so a word of judgment is given to him. Now we're introduced to a second boy, and his name is Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God with us. So who is this boy? Here's an encouragement. If you've been a Christian for any period of time and you're kind of familiar with this name, don't jump to Jesus too quickly because we have to look in context and see who this child is. Uh, And we see that as we look in context. uh, In some ways, it doesn't matter who this child is as much as what his name means. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself would give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, his, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to, and when he knows uh, how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as has not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. You see, if this boy, Emmanuel, was born around this time, then he would have been very young when Syria fell to Assyria. And he would have been an adolescent when Israel fell to Assyria, both predicted there in verse 16. And he would have been around 30 years old when Judah herself almost fell to the Assyrians, as predicted there in verse 17. Verse 18 through to the end of chapter 7 continues with this theme of judgment on Judah. And then we're introduced to a third child by the unfortunate name of Mahashahalal Hashbaz. Poor kid. You imagine that kid running around playground with that name. Anyway, the kid's name means quick to plunder, swift to the spoil. And then we're told in chapter 8, verse 4, before this boy is old enough to cry out, Mummy and Daddy, Syria and Israel will be destroyed by Assyria. And then the flood of Assyria will wipe out Judah as well in chapter 8, verse 8. See, Israel and Judah are going to be plundered quickly. They are going to spoil swiftly. It seems then that we're meant to read these kids and their names together. Emmanuel and Mahashal Hashbaz are meant to be read together. We're meant to understand what these boys represent together. You see, God with us is not some comforting image. It's not some nice thing that you put on a placard with a really nice photo of a sunset. You know, Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, isn't that nice? buy that Kurong for $40. You see, God with us, the presence of God among his people is the bad news of God's coming judgment. God with us means God's judgment on us. Now, remember at the start, I said that this part of Isaiah starts to shine a light in darkness. Well, sorry, so far in Isaiah chapter 6 to 8, we've continued this bleak picture of judgment. Righteous judgment, for sure, even for Judah's sins. In fact, the last word in chapter 8, verse 22, is darkness. You have a look there at chapter 8, verse 22. And they, the, the, those who are the Israelites taken away, will look to the earth... But behold, distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into the darkness. But then keep going in your Bibles to chapter 9, verse 2. 
the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. A word of hope. A word of hope, a dramatic change of mood. Judgment is rarely the last word from God. The darkness that God's faithful remnant were thrown into along with everyone else is now lifted. They walked in the darkness and with echoes of God speaking light into creation. Now a great light has come. A massive turnaround is happening. And again, it centers on another child. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. uh, Or more literally, a wonder, a counselor. Mighty God, everlasting peace, a father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we've been speaking about this remnant. We've mentioned this idea of a remnant in Isaiah. This remnant, this, the, the nation is big, but it's only a small few in that nation who are faithful to God, who have not turned to idols, who have not bowed their knee to these idols. Yet this faithful remnant will be caught up with everyone else and thrown out. But God does not forget them. He brings them back. The hopes of the remnant are being pinned then on this new king who will be raised up. Another child, a Davidic king, who will this time rule with righteousness and justice. You see, where Ahaz failed, this boy will succeed. And not because this boy will be special in of himself, but as the final words of verse 7 show us, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. God will make sure of this boy's success. Now, with this new king, there seems to be another time of judgment. Chapter 9, verse 8 to chapter 10, verse 4, has our attention focused back on the sin of Israel, her pride. You can see this clearly pictured uh, in chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. You see, where she looks at her defeat and the smashing of her city, right? The bricks and the wooden frames of her home have been brought down and they are scattered everywhere. And she looks at this scene and in her sick pride and arrogance, she looks at this rubble as an opportunity to renovate and upgrade. Who does that? Who looks upon the judgment of God and says, time to upgrade, kids? Instead of repenting and turning to God, she carries on. And so God stretches out his hand and does not hold back his anger. And then in chapter 10, verse 5 to 9, attention is turned to Assyria. Have a look at chapter 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. You see, God is saying, I have commanded Assyria to go and be my instrument of judgment. But, verse 7, but he does not intend so intend, and his heart does not think so think. 
but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders like all kings? Is not Kauno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? You see, Assyria was God's judgment, instrument of judgment. But in Assyria's heart, they were intent on destruction. Get this. God is so sovereign. God is so sovereign that he will use the evil intentions and motivations of man's heart for his good purposes. Not even the evil hearts of men are outside of God's sovereign purposes and uses. This is our God. And again, into these words of judgment come another ray of hope, another shining light into the darkness. Ahaz has proven himself to be a failure, but God will raise up a true Davidic king to take his place. And what a king he shall be. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. You hear that echo of Isaiah 9, that child? Right? The wonderful counselor, wonderful, a wonder, a counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. I think we're meant to see here these two together. The child of Isaiah 9 is this shoot. Carry on in verse 2. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or dis- decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And remember at the end of chapter 6, God told Isaiah to keep preaching this message of judgment and doom until he cut down Israel, leaving them as a stump in the ground. The mighty empire that was, uh, that was is not cut down, it's, it's smashed to the ground. And yet, out of this stump, a new shoot emerges. A new king from the line of David who would not fail like Ahaz did. And like the child in Isaiah 9, this Davidic king will rule with righteousness and justice. You see that there in verses 4 to 5 of chapter 11. Unlike all the kings that came before, this one will be perfect. And at this king's coming, it seems that the whole of creation will be made new. You have a look at verses 6 to 9 in chapter 11. And you get this image of the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the goat, the cow and the bear grazing together. Now this could be a picture of creation, but it could also be a metaphor for the nations being at peace with each other. You remember how the prophet Daniel, you know, he describes the various nations around him as beasts, as animals. And here Isaiah could be picturing the nations at peace with each other. And you get this picture of complete safety in verse 8. A nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Kids playing with snakes. A few years ago, we had a snake visit our home. And I am so glad that there was a glass door separating us, because that snake was a good two, two and a half meters long. And he's still out there in the wild. There is no way I was going to open those doors 
and let my kids play with that snake. In fact, there's a video of that. I have it, I've got it at home, I'll bring it on my phone, and it's really cute, but it's, I cut it off too short because the kids were like, I'm scared, Daddy, I'm scared, get rid of it. And then Janessa says, let's eat it. <laughs> I don't know. I... And yet, with this coming king, you see this picture of complete safety. In verse 11, this king brings back his faithful remnant from across the nations, Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Kush, Elam, China, Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea, from the four corners of the globe, you could say. This king is recovering his people, bringing them back to him. And this king also reconciles the north and the south. Israel, referred to as Ephraim in chapter 11, and Judah. Again, they're going to be a united nation. And this united nation sweeps through the land, judging other nations. God's instrument now of righteous judgment. And on that day, this king comes. God's people will thank him. They will trust him and not be afraid. And they will sing and shout for joy to their God, Yahweh. Picture after picture has been thrown at us. And in the end, we see this collage. God has cut down his people, leaving them as a stump. They thoroughly deserve it for their pride, their idolatry, and their injustice. Ahaz, their king, has failed. So God will raise up a new king, a shoot from that stump, and he will be gloriously righteous and a thoroughly good king. And when that king arrives, God's faithful people will be recovered. There will be peace. Globally, there will be safety and security. And God's people will sing for joy forevermore. These are the promises that are laid out here in Isaiah chapter 6 to 12. This is the picture that he has been painting for us. And they all center around this child, this shoot. God's great plans and great purposes are going to be fulfilled in this little boy. So who was this boy? Yes, that's right. This boy was Hezekiah. It would have been Hezekiah. See, he would have been a young child by the time Israel and Syria were destroyed by Assyria. As Ahaz's son, he was a Davidic king. And when he took the throne, he brought in sweeping religious reforms, bringing back true and proper worship of Yahweh. He tore down the high places of Baal. He was a man of righteousness and justice. That marked his kingship. And yet he wasn't perfect. His kingdom and rule didn't bring in the sort of peace and safety that you would see a child playing with snakes. And in the end, he also did some pretty foolish things. See, if you're reading this and hearing this news and then Hezekiah had come and your hopes were now being tasted, they were being brought up, is Hezekiah the one to fulfill it? And then he fails. You've just heard God's word and now your hopes, they seem to have failed. So either God's word had failed or God's word was yet to be properly fulfilled. 
And so the child that God's people had been waiting for would eventually come, but in a very surprising way. In a literal way, born of a virgin, raised in Galilee, with the Spirit of God clearly upon him, empowering his ministry, who would echo the words of Isaiah 8 when he told his disciples to not let their hearts be troubled, but trust me whose apostle Peter would later quote Isaiah 8 and as well in calling him the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Jesus would fulfill the words of Isaiah here in ways that are more wonderful than we could have ever imagined, than they could have ever imagined. His coming brought judgment, but he brought it on himself. His coming, imagine that, bringing judgment upon himself, We now have the chance to respond to him in faith before he returns again to roll out final judgment. His coming brought peace and reconciliation between us and God and powerfully between us and each other. And so here's what we need to do with this. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Isaiah predicted and hoped. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to put our trust in him. You know, Isaiah puts it this way. When he, he goes back, go, go back in your Bibles, flick to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. Isaiah puts it this way, chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. There's a lot, of, there's a lot to fear in this life. But the one thing we must fear above all else is God himself. We need to fear him because God has the power to judge us. You know, we all deserve that. We have all earned his judgment. Our sin has brought shame on us and it's dishonored God. You should know better. I should know better. And we have all failed in front of God. To fear God is to know that you've done wrong and to own that you have failed, to not run and hide from it, to know that he has the power to crush you and to believe his word, that he promises to turn all of that away if you will trust him. If you will trust that Jesus has turned that all away. So if you're not a Christian here, if you're not exactly 100% sure, Would you do that? Do you see that your sins bring you condemnation, but that Jesus turns that all away? Trust Jesus that there will no longer be any anger, shame, or dishonor. Instead, you receive God's approval. And if you are a Christian, how is your trust going? Earlier in Isaiah 7, when Ahaz and Judah are surrounded by Israel and that Syria alliance, we read that they are afraid. So Isaiah comes with a word from God and says, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. 
Isaiah is saying that God has this totally under control. If you will trust him, he'll make sure that you survive. Do not let your heart be faint. I love that because that's exactly how my heart feels when life becomes stressful or overwhelming or I feel the pressure from this world. My heart becomes faint. It becomes weak. There are a lot of things in our world that can cause us to be fearful as Christians. I got this booklet a few weeks ago at a conference, Turn the Tides, produced by Barnabas Fund, a great group. Uh, But it outlines many areas of genuine concerns for Christians. Uh, Are Christian street preachers arrested for mentioning the word sin? A Christian youth camp association forced by law to teach material against their ideology. Law courts in a number of cases began exercising the power to determine what Christians should and should not believe. The courts are determining what you as a Christian should or should not believe. Now, you read this book before bed, and it's not a good idea because it's worse than reading a horror story. And yet, the words of Isaiah to Ahaz come back. Do not let your hearts be afraid. Do not let your hearts faint. Do not be afraid. One of the key ways that you know that you are trusting God is that you, know, you are not afraid of what man can do to you. We have a good God, an unfailingly good God, and a God with unqualified power. The sending of Jesus to die for our sins and be raised back to life is ultimate proof that our good and powerful God is for us. And not against us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And if we fear God, who else would be worthy of our fear? Resolve to never act out of fear. If you feel fear rising within you, whatever reason, ask yourself, what am I afraid of? What am I worried about? What's at the root of this fear? What would happen if my fears came true? And then ask yourself, how does the gospel engage with this fear? What would happen if I trusted Jesus more than my fear? The rest of the book of Isaiah will tease out in more detail what it means to trust God. But for now, let that be the question we leave with. Are we fearing and trusting God? The final application flows, uh, for this morning flows out of Isaiah 12. Give thanks to God, trust and, not, and be not afraid. Sing praises to the Lord, shout and sing for joy. Uh, the people of God rejoiced when in that day their Davidic king would come. And as the people of God now we rejoice because Jesus has come. And so Paul echoes the words of Isaiah 12, maybe not intentionally, but wonderfully so. Let me just read it out for us to, to hear. Let this... Wash over us. Remember, as the people of God, trusting in Jesus, we have been saved, we have been forgiven, we have been reconciled to God. The judgment that Jesus brings, he took on himself so that we do not have to face. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you are a Christian, you are engaged in the business of thankfulness, joy, and singing. The more you know Jesus, the more you let his word dwell richly in your life, the more it will flow out. Thankfulness will mark your life. Song will always be on the tip of your lips. Joy will be the undercurrent, no matter what your present emotion. Why don't we spend some time praying about that? And then after this service, let's think about how we can keep growing together and encourage each other to grow together in these things. Let me pray. Our Lord Jesus, our wonderful counsellor, the wonder, the counsellor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, thank you that you have come. Thank you that no matter what our life circumstances are, we can thank you, we can begin our prayers to you with thanksgiving. Thank you for that you would come and take the judgment for us. That the judgment here that Isaiah weaves in and warns us by, your son Jesus, you, Jesus, have taken. Lord Jesus, help us to see this and to trust you. That we may not fear anything else in this life. That we may live from a place of courage and joy because of what you've done for us. That because we fear you, Jesus, we do not have to fear anyone else. Because we fear you, that we no other man would be worthy of our fear. Lord Jesus, please be at work within us, that your word dwell richly. Let this word here and your prophet Isaiah dwell richly, deeply in our lives. So deep that it, it can't help but overflow. In thankfulness, in song as we sing joyfully, and in our joy as we continue to live for you. Lord Jesus, do all of these things for your glory, that your glory may be our great joy that we pursue, and for our joy we also pray in Jesus, in your name. Amen.